Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by this message from the Kalamazoo, Michigan campus. For more info on the church, visit newdaycommunity.org. We're in the outward journey right now. This is the, actually the last week, if you've been around for, any, for more than a week, you've probably heard this phrase, the outward journey. And that's what we're concluding today, but don't worry, it doesn't end today. The series ends today, but it's an ongoing, lifelong journey that we're all on together as a collective body of believers, outwardly extending uh, the mission of God through our lives. Uh, This outward journey is the last part of a three-part series that we've done all of 2017. We did the inward journey to start, which is growing spiritually, getting healed of of past wounds and hurts and and growing spiritually internally. The second part of the year was the upward journey, getting to know God, getting to know His character, His likes, dislikes, because when you see Him for who He is, you become like Him. You begin to reflect His nature and His image. And the outward journey, this last part of the year, is based off of a verse in John 20, when Jesus shows up to His disciples after His resurrection. I'll read it here in just a minute. It is John 20, 19 through 21, and it says this, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, if, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior, and you say, you identify with that, then, then you've inherited this commission. You have by association with Jesus in his death and his resurrection, you've, you've inherited this commission that as the Father has sent Jesus, so now Jesus is sending you into the world. That's the outward journey, that's the... That's the focal point of of what we're talking about here. This is the last week of that series, and it's called The Outward Journey, Practical Outward Journey on the Streets. We're going to look at what it looks like to live this thing out on the streets. And when I say streets, I'm thinking two different things. Okay, I'm thinking the actual literal street that you live on, Whatever name that street is, it probably has, even if it's an apartment, it's on a, you have an address, there's a street involved. And then the second part is the street in terms of point A to point B. When you're on your way from one place to the next, you're on the street. You're in process, in transit from point A to point B. The street. There's two different kind of ways to look at it. And we're going to look at a passage this morning in the Gospel of Luke that will uh, hopefully shine some light on what it looks like to live out the outward journey on the street. It's called the Good Samaritan. It's found in Luke 10, 25-37. Starting in verse 25. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what must I do, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
Right, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man, when he, when he, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant, also known as a Levite, walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. So this scene takes place, I'll I'll split it up in kind of three parts. The first scene of the story of the Good Samaritan is this man attacked by bandits. What is this bandit doing attacking this Jewish man? on the way from Jerusalem to Jericho. So if you're at New Day Nichols, that is by distance from here to downtown Schoolcraft. Imagine walking by foot in zero degree. No, in, it's not zero degrees there, but it does get cold. I've never been there. I don't know. It's, ni- it's 18, 19 miles. And so you're walking on foot, but, but you're used to walking, but 19 miles away. However, it's different because it's Jerusalem is up on a hill and Jericho's down in the valley. It's about a mile, half mile descent down the whole way and it's through all these caves and you kind of have to watch your back because the trek from Jerusalem to Jericho is notorious for bandits, notorious for robbers, notorious for murderers, notorious for thieves who are looking to attack the next innocent Jewish man on his way. In fact, at the end of most of the Gospels, I think if, if not all, there's this man mentioned, his name's Barabbas. He was the one that Pilate released to the Jews on Passover in place of Jesus to, to crucify Jesus. Barabbas was this same word, the bandit. He was a murderer, he was a robber, he fit the same category. He was the kind of person who would attack and beat up and leave a man lying half dead on the side of the road on their way to Jericho. So, in the minds of the audience hearing this story, this is predictable. This is not a shock. It's like you have, you can imagine the people saying, oh, that's why I don't take that trip, that's why I don't go to Jericho anymore, because this always happens. The police need to be in, law enforcement really needs to step it up on the way to Jericho because it's the next, I've heard of this story a hundred times, people getting killed on the way to Jericho, that's predictable. What's, uh, what's also, let's look at the next scene 
it is a scene of the priest and the temple assistant, or the Levite. The original question by the lawyer was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? His answers were very textbook. He was, in fact, an expert in this. It was like he was throwing Jesus a softball, and Jesus throws it back, and he just knocks it out of the park because he quotes two very infamous passages from the Old Testament. The first is the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 4. Deuteronomy 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. This is even to, the day, even to this day a very central creed of the Jewish faith. And he quotes it as a textbook answer to the question that he, in fact, asked Jesus. The next verse he quotes, or kind of alludes to, is Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You can read in this passage almost a definition of what a neighbor was understood to be. The sons of your own people. That's what a neighbor is. We'll see in a bit how Jesus expands that definition. But it's at least the people who are like you. It's at the very least the people who live by you. So the question he asks is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Part of, part of which is love your neighbor as yourself. The man lying half dead on the side of the road, in fact, is a Jewish man, a very neighbor of the priest and the Levite. So why is it? What, kind of, what sort of precedent did the priest and the Levite have to pass him by? It's helpful to understand that in the time of Jesus, there was what we call this the golden rule. There was a probably more popular golden rule, especially for priests and Levites, and it was you shall not touch an unclean body. That, we can see by the actions of the priest, that kind of trumped the, the rule of love your neighbor as yourself. You know, loving God and loving neighbor is supposed to be the canopy over which all the laws are understood. Jesus mentions this. But, but we can see by the actions of the, of the priest and the Levite that in fact the, the law for ritual purity was kind of taken and put on top of that canopy. And as long as, as, long as loving God and loving neighbor wasn't compromised by touching an unclean body, then I can love God and love neighbor. And it's helpful to kind of look at the story. The Jewish lawyer is, in a sense, the defending attorney for the priest and the Levite. That's his job, after all. He's a religious lawyer. His job is to defend the religious establishment against their keeping of the Torah. We see that the priest and the Levite, uh, they miss the opportunity to love their neighbor, but they're they're not without precedent. They have a couple... I mean, these are but a few verses in the Old Testament they can point to. Numbers 19, 11, all those who touch a dead human body will be ceremonially unclean for seven days. Now, was he literally dead? Well, he looked dead. Maybe that's the defense. Yeah, he was, he was bloody. I can't touch blood. Leviticus 21, even more specific to the priests, the Lord said to Moses, give the following instructions to the priests, the descendants of Aaron. A priest must not make himself ceremonially unclean by touching the dead body of a relative. It's, it's helpful to point out the contrast between stated belief and lived practice. Right? The, the religious people, the lawyer, and by association, the priest and Levite, if anybody, is supposed to live 
by the, by the Torah, right? Interred eternal life, love God, love neighbor. Here's a chance to love your very Jewish blood and you, and you walk to the other side of the road. How is it that you, your stated belief is you must, lo- to inherit eternal life, you must love your neighbor as yourself. And yet when presented the opportunity, you intentionally, you see it. It's not like you're, you complete ignorance. You, it says they saw the man, but then they walked to the other side of the road. The contrast between stated belief and lived practice is stark. So was the, was the fact that the priest and the temple assistant passing by on the other side of the road, was that predictable or unpredictable? Unfortunately, it was pretty predictable. Like I said, in that time, there was a, the, the, the law, the ritual purity laws were kind of put in as a, an, an addendum that, 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 that everything else had to be understood by, especially for the Levites and the priests. So, it's interesting, you know, all three of these men are on their way somewhere, right? The, the temple assistant, the priest, they're on their way to Jericho. The, the Samaritan, he's also on his way to Jericho. It's not like he was intending to stop for this man, but he, but he stopped. <clears throat> it says, while the other two passed by, this man was moved with compassion. So, so the, the neighbor, of the hero of the story is moved with compassion. Is, this, is the hero of the story, being a Samaritan man, is that predictable? In fact, this is the worst possible outcome for the lawyer asking the question. I mean, this is, this is the last person you want to be the hero of the story. This is the despised Samaritan. Let's get a little recap or a review of the history of Jews and Samaritans. Classic racial, ethnic tension. Let's go back a thousand years. Okay, we have King David. Israel is a united empire, a united monarchy. They're not really an empire because they're small, regional, but they're, they're united. David's son Solomon, he's still united, but he's a little bit shaky. Solomon's son Rehoboam is in, inherits the kingdom. And he doesn't want to distribute funds to the northern tribes. And so the northern tribes get mad, and a a king rises up from their ranks, and they essentially split apart. So now you have the southern kingdom, which is called Judah, and the northern kingdom, which is called Israel. Northern southern kingdom. Okay, in 722 BC, Assyria is in charge of the whole region. Assyria captures the northern kingdom, but not the southern kingdom yet. The northern kingdom is now captured, and the way Assyria did exile was that they took everyone who they captured and put them in a blender. And so here are, ten, here are you know, 10% of the influential people in Israel, we're going to put them up in Mesopotamia. Here are all these Mesopotamian people, we're going to bring them down into Israel. And everyone is going somewhere else to where in the land of Samaria, in the northern kingdom, after exile, it's just a melting pot of all different religions, all different ethnicities, all different ideologies stuck in this one area. 150 years later, Judah, the southern kingdom, the regional power has shifted. It's no longer Assyria. Babylon's conquered Assyria. And so now, Babylon is in control, and Babylon did exile differently than the Assyrians. Babylon said, we're going to take all your influential people, and we're going to export them to Babylon. 
As you read about it in the book of Jeremiah, for instance, all the influential people are in exile in, in Babylon. Well, now Persia takes over the whole region, and Persia allows 40, no, the, the remnant, the chunk of, of Israelites that have maintained their identity and haven't assimilated into Babylon. They allow, he allows King Cyprus or, or of Persia, Xerxes, and all these guys, they allowed Jerusalem or Judah to go back to the region of the southern kingdom, Judah. When they get there, there's intermarriage and, and Ezra, in the book of Ezra, he evokes these divorce edicts where he says, do not marry anyone from Samaria. And the Samaritans tried to prevent it because in, 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 their, in the back of their mind, there's still a, a Jewish identity. We're still Jewish. And, and yeah, there's these other religions and these other people, but we're still, we're the northern kingdom. So for, just take that moment in time and then times it by 550 years before Jesus. And so for, for five centuries, this racial tension, ethnic diversity, polarization is, is only 30 miles apart from in Samaria and Israel and, or in Judah. So now New Testament is on the scene. There's a hot bed of tension between the Samaritans and the Israelites or in the, the kingdom of the Judah, people of Judah surrounding Jerusalem. And the Jews viewed the Samaritans as, as ethnically, religiously, and theologically compromised, as unclean, as bankrupt, as less than. And the, and the Samaritans weren't any better. They didn't, they didn't have any respect, any acknowledgement of the Jews. They had their own Mount, Zip, Mount Gerizim. There's no longer Mount Sinai. They sw- so there's a lot of history, and hopefully you maybe understood a piece of that. Just to say that the there was serious racism and serious issues going on in this time. So for the Samaritan man to be the hero of the story is the last person anyone who is Jewish would want to be the hero. What's, what's the modern day parallel? Right? I mean, it's, there's, there's so many. But in our country, right, the his, historically, our, the, our, our his, what we've inherited as a country and what we've often benefited from is this, is this polarization between black and white. You can look back not too long, only a couple of decades, and this is intense racism where, you know, the whites have viewed blacks and even further back as subspecies. Right? And so even now, today, there's in parts of our culture and wherever you're at, there's this racial tension that, that we're living in. This is, this is a human condition in, in a lot of ways. We can, we can experience it firsthand in our own country. But I was talking to a friend who's from Ethiopia and we're talking about racism in America. And he says, well, this is a human condition. This is not something unique to America, although the history is unique in many ways. I mean, anytime there's a group of people and they can form a, a tribal identity and, and distinct, distinguish themselves from another group of people, they're going to try to view themselves as better, as more important. And, and whoever that other group is, they're going to find the things about them that are different, that are less significant, that are, that are less valuable, and then point those out and, and cause a division. This is a fallen human condition, and it spans centuries of, of, of time, but but we're living in the middle of it. We, we see this 
all over. The Samaritan man is the hero of this story. What does that mean for us? It's interesting. The question, the original question for, the, for Jesus was, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus asks him the same question. He responds, and the guy wants to justify his actions. He wants to know that he's being a neighbor. And so he says, well, who is my neighbor? Jesus responds with the story. He doesn't answer the question, though. He doesn't answer the question, who is my neighbor? He tells a story about what a neighbor looks like, which is a completely different question. But it's, he's, it's the right question that Jesus is wanting to answer. So the question isn't, who is my neighbor, so I can know who to love and who I don't have to. The question is, what does a neighbor look like so I know how to love the person in front of me, whoever it might be? That's, that's what the story is showing us. And, and the man, the Jewish lawyer, is, is reluctant. He won't even admit that it's a Samaritan. He says it's the one who showed him mercy. Because I can't. I can't, admit, I can't say the name. I can't admit that he was actually the hero. It's the one who showed him mercy. So it's completely unpredictable that the Samaritan is the hero the question to ask is not, who is my neighbor, but what does a neighbor look like? And I want to just ask that question in the two different realms that we're talking about. The realm of your literal street, the street that you live on, the address that you have, and the street when you're on your way from point A to point B. What does it look like to love your neighbor on the street? So, very practically, do you know the names of the people that you live near? Right? Do you know the names of the people who live across the street or on either side of you? Or maybe you're out in the country and you're like, I don't even spend miles for the next person. Do you know the, their name? Actually, in the country, it's, I was in Vandalia preaching this, and they're actually really good at knowing the names. Even if they're miles away, you know the closest person. In the suburbs, it's not really the same. You know, I mean, I'm not from Portage, but I heard there's this thing called the Portage Wave, but that's about all you get, right? Where it's like, hey, hi, that's it. No talking, no conversation. All I can do is wave at you. Other than that, it's too much. <laughs> Wherever you're from, <laughs> yeah, there's just very practical ways to, to get to know people. You don't know how to love somebody until you know where they're at. And you don't know where they're at until you at least know their name. We can start. We can start basic. What's the? What are their names? Here's the goal. 2018. You're setting goals. Get to know the names of the eight closest people who live by you. Get to know their names. Because this is this is just. You don't have to hyper spiritualize it. You can't have a relationship with somebody when you don't know their name. So you go from complete stranger to now you're an acquaintance. You know their name. There's an association. So now, okay, once I know your name, I can get to know a little bit about you, about your life, about your history, about what your life goals are, where you're at. And, and then the fruit of that, Anthony, Pastor Anthony pointed this out a few weeks ago, the fruit of that is an opportunity to share the love of Jesus. But, but just to say, hey, I got to know your name. Here's the gospel. I'm going I'm to get out of here. That's, that's a totally distorted view of of what it means to be a consistent presence as a loving neighbor in the life of your literal neighborhood. So what does it look like 
to love your neighbor on your street, if we began to see this in our neighborhoods, we would see neighborhood city transformation. If every Christian took this mandate literally, we would see complete regions transformed. I don't know how many Christians are in this area, but if every Christian lived by this, what's supposed to be golden rule, where we, where we like the, I'm going to filter out everything else. My main objective is to love my neighbor as myself. What's striking, though, is like, do you, do you know the, 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 who in your neighborhood are the Christians? By the way that they love the neighborhood. Because according to, I mean, according to this passage, there should be some sort of ability to identify. Often it's not there. I know that's heavy, uh, but it's, there's something compelling to say. At the, at, the, at the least, a neighbor is somebody who lives next to you. Jesus expands it to mean more than that. To mean, in fact, the people on the street. Uh, he, he expands the definition to include anybody you might come in contact with. The familiar definition was the people of my own ethnic background, the people of my own religion. Those are my neighbors, the people who live in my region. Jesus expands the definition to say anybody who you come in contact with. And notice, it's not the Jewish man who saw a Samaritan and came to his aid. It's the Samaritan man, the despised Samaritan that saw the Jewish man and he came to his aid. Right? It's the Samaritan whose, whose views, whose understanding is thought to be compromised and, and corrupted that showed the love of God where the priest and the Levite failed. So on the street, here's a quote from Dallas Willard that I've been struck by. It's been ruminating in my mind. He says, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. I think, man, ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. How can, we live in America. This is like, this is the DNA, this is my lifeblood. I'm in a hurry, and if I'm not, I'm not doing enough. I'm not busy enough. You can't keep up. Are you interruptible? Are you able to be interrupted? Because everything, when you're on the street, you're going from point A to point B. You're on your way, just like the Samaritan, just like the priest, just like the Levite, you're on your way somewhere. You, you, you are preoccupied with where you're going. You're thinking about who you're going to see, what you're going to eat, where you're going to sleep, whatever it is. You're on your way somewhere. In on your way mode, are you able to be present to the presence of God and see the opportunity to love your neighbor as the person in front of you when given the opportunity? When we're constantly in a hurry, we're far less interruptible and far less available to be used by God to do what he wants to do in the earth. Now, it's important to recognize that if we just respond to human need, we'll be immediately drowned in, in the need because it's overwhelming. We need to, we need to live according to the Spirit and, and move and respond according to the Holy Spirit when a need presents itself because if you're just trying to be rote about it and only do what's in front of you. I mean, even if you think about prayer or, of, or poverty alleviation, the need is, is overwhelming. So we do have to have some discernment intact to know what the Holy Spirit is personally calling us to do. However, we can't let that be so much of a hang-up that we actually don't love 
the person in front of us, whether it's your literal neighbor or your neighbor on the street, on your way from point A to point B. So here's, here's a couple things we see from that story um, that what love looks like. I mean, these aren't the only ways, but these are what the story shows us. It's supposed to say a love moved by compassion. So you can just read that there. A love moved by compassion. This is what neighborly love looks like. It's a love moved by compassion unto the sacrifice of, a couple things, precious supplies. This guy had oil and wine that he was carrying, probably for a different purpose, but he used it. Precious supplies on this man. Are you willing to sacrifice your precious supplies, the things that you're holding onto very tightly for a specific purpose, and when given the opportunity, prompted by the Holy Spirit, let them go to the aid of, of somebody in need? personal assets, his own donkey. This was an investment that he made that got him, carried his, his belongings on this long 20-mile journey, and yet he used his personal assets to transport this, this wounded man. Are you willing and able to sacrifice your personal assets to love your neighbor? Whatever that looks like. So another thing he gave up was his personal time. Obviously, I pointed this out. He's on his way from point A to point B. He's not planning on this. But he, he, he lays all that aside and says, here's, here's what I need to do. Moved by compassion, which is an internal prompting that everything else is now pushed to the side and compassion compels me. Stayed with him till morning. And then personal finances. He put his money where his mouth is and he says... Here, I'll pay, I'll pay his, his stay. And if he goes over, I'll pay you everything he owes when I get back. I mean, these are just a couple areas. The love of neighbors is the comprehensive, like it's limitless. But we see from this story just a few ways that this Samaritan man loved his neighbor. It's, so, that's a lot. How, how are we feeling? How are you feeling right now? Convicted. <laughs> good. Okay, so that's good. There's a couple different things. Maybe, so if I'm thinking through how I'm feeling, okay, maybe you're feeling like, wow, I've been a horrible neighbor. I really suck at this. <laughs> I don't know anyone's name, and I've lived there for 20 years, and I didn't realize that this was a commandment, I guess. Or, I mean, maybe, or maybe you're feeling like, you know what, 2018, I'm going to, I'm going to, dang it, I'm going to be a better neighbor. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to love people. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do better. I'm going to take this up as a, as a resolution. That's good. Or maybe you're thinking, hey, actually, I may be the rare few, but I'm feeling pretty good. I actually know my neighbor's names, and I know a little bit about them, and we have good conversations, so feel pretty good. <laughs> That's probably unlikely, but... I'll say this, however you're feeling, if it's, if it's based in your own initiative, it's insufficient to see any real and lasting resolve. Any, it's insufficient if it's just based on your own effort to see any real and lasting love of your neighbor. How can I say that? Because if you know your own heart, you know that in and of yourself, you don't have the capacity to do this. Right? Because... Because there's, there's, there's a limited supply. There's two neighbors in this story. 
Right? There's, there's the neighbor, there's the good Samaritan man, but then there's the neighbor that the good Samaritan is a shadow of. As the man telling the story, it says Jesus. Jesus is the, the second neighbor that this is ultimately pointing to. And we need to do a little bit of role reversal to understand what this is saying. Until you can identify with the man lying half dead on the side of the road, you cannot fully understand what it means to be the Samaritan man. In other words, until we understand that I was the helpless, I was the man lying half dead on the side of the road with no one to help me, with no one to come to my aid, with every religious system passing me by. I was the one lying broken and ready to die. And, and Jesus came from without. He came from heaven down to earth to give of himself, not just his personal assets, not just his personal belongings, personal time, personal finances, but to give his very life as an expression of ultimate love for me. Until I can identify as this nameless man lying on the side of the road, I have have no ability in myself to love my neighbor and to just look at the example of the Good Samaritan and say, I'm going to do better, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to be that man. Because it's the love of God that needs to compel you to love your neighbor. The reason I say there's two neighbors in this story is a couple of reasons. Two, I think, are pretty compelling is a couple words that are used in this story. So, the man is described as being moved with compassion. You know who's moved with compassion in the Bible? It's Jesus exclusively, except for the father of the prodigal son, who is an expression of the heart of God. In the Gospel of Luke in particular, it's Jesus who's moved with compassion, and the father of the prodigal son, and the good Samaritan. Both archetypes foreshadowing what Jesus is about to do. The second reason is, the guy says, who's, when asked, who's, who's the hero, who's the neighbor? He goes, the one who showed him mercy. You know who exclusively is the one who shows mercy in Scripture? It's, it's God. It's God who shows mercy. Both of these reasons, I think, are pretty compelling to say that this is actually a story that Jesus is using to, to answer the man's, well, he doesn't answer the man's question, but to point to what he's about to do in, in fully expressing the heart of a, of a loving God by dying for us in our helplessness. So our love for our neighbor must flow out of God's love for us. Until you have received the love and grace and unearned forgiveness and redemption of God, your effort your ability to love your neighbor is completely cut off from any real and lasting change. For one, you won't have the joy to push, or you, and you don't have the peace to regroup when you fail. All this comes out of the love of God. So I can't think of a more fitting way to, to end you know, this outward journey than to say, uh, we, need, we need to receive from the love of God. Like we need to just, just before we try harder, do better, no, it's, it's a different route. We need to receive from God's love that it overflows 
and so that it would overflow in us and move us outward. Because here's the thing. It's loved people that love people. It's loved people that love people. Until you understand that you're fully accepted and loved and embraced by the Father through the Son in Jesus. Your love for for your neighbor it's coming out of a broken cistern that does not have living water flowing through it. So let's just receive from the love of God because it's so powerful and overwhelming.